All right, good morning. My name is Brian. Again, I'm one of the pastors here. If this is your first time or you weren't here, it was right at the very beginning. But uh, Jim is off this week, so I'm kind of taking over for him in his absence. He's off at the beach somewhere, I think, having some fun. But um, So we're right smack dab in the middle of a series called Helping the Next Gen Win. And really, last week, Jim kicked it off, and he talked a lot about... Um, you know, setting an example for the, the generations that are coming behind us. So each one of us, you know, we were born at some point in life, I hope. And then there's people that were born after us. And so there's generations that come up behind us that we, you know, kind of have a, a mandate or we have a responsibility to do our best to kind of help that generation kind of grow and, and help them navigate life. And so he talked to us sort of about how we're to provide a better standard for living, uh, a better standard for living, which would then improve their standard of living. So we looked at some different generations and how, um, you know, one generation wanted their generation or their kids to have a better life than they did. But when we try to think about how we can create a better standard for living, then we'll be providing them a standard of living. And so we talked about a lot of things that had to do with that. And, and he kind of went through a lot of the different generations. And today we're going to look at a little bit different. We have a, um, a little slide that we're going to show that's going to kind of walk us through what we're talking about when we look at generations. And so some of this text might be a little small, but... Um, across the top here, we have the five generations um, that are kind of in existence today. And this is one of the, you know, really the first times in history where there's been five distinct generations all living at the same time. And so we start off kind of over here on the left, or your left, uh, with the builders or the greatest generation. And kind of what we're going to look at down here on this bottom one is sort of like the life paradigm that they kind of brought with them as they kind of transitioned in life from, from say, backpack to a briefcase, all right? So we have the builders, the greatest generation, um, and they kind of grew up between 1929 and 45 was when they were born, and they grew up kind of during some hard times, the Great, uh, the great Depression during this, you know, World War II. Um, these people, they grew up to, to kind of be fr- a little frugal. You know, they, they keep the wrapping paper at Christmas time. You know, they, they keep the bows and stuff like that to reuse. Um, you know, very conservative and kind of a, they grew up in sort of a cautious time, right? And their kind of mandate was be grateful you have a job, right? That's kind of the life paradigm that they kind of went in through as they kind of came through that Great Depression. Like, you have a job, be grateful for that. Whatever it might be, be grateful. And we moved on to the, the boomers, okay? And so this is kind of like the baby boom, right? Like their parents came back from World War II and then maternity wards filled up, right? And so 76,000 uh, babies, I think, were born during that time. This just, just boomed, right? The boomers. And so they were 46 to 64, and they kind of had this sort of entitlement attitude as they kind of went into life as, you know, you kind of owe me, right? Like you had a rough life and and our parents said, you know, we want you to have a better life. And so they kind of took and ran with that and sort of had a little bit of a you owe me mentality as they kind of came into the workplace. And so, and again, this is sort of generalities. This isn't everybody. So if you're in one of these categories and you're not that way, like I'm not kind of pointing the finger and, and we're not criticizing generations here, but just trying to get a little bit of a sense um, if, as you look at the whole. And you moved on to what we're calling or, or another name for is the busters, right? Gen X, 65 to 82. 
Um, and they call them the busters because this is really the time, and not everyone calls them the busters, but this is about the time when birth control really hit the public sector. And so you saw this massive boom of babies being born, and then it dropped off a little bit, or, or quite a bit in that generation. And that's because you know birth control was out, uh, Roe v. Wade was out. That was a big issue during that time. And so, again, you had kind of this caution to kind of confidence. And then we swayed back into, into caution again. And this is, you know, during the Vietnam War, um, you know, Watergate happened. So there's a lot of kind of unrest and unsure. And so their kind of mantra they brought in is just, just relate to me. I just need someone to relate to me. There's so much mess going on and confusion and lying in the world that I just kind of want someone to relate to me. And so you see the pendulum kind of sway back. And then you have the millennials, right? The millennials are the Gen Y, right? Generation Y. This is 83 to 2000. So this is my generation. And, uh, but this kind of the, the life mantra or the life paradigm is life is a cafeteria. Okay, life's a cafeteria. For the first time really in history, there's all these choices, all these choices where, you know, Napster came out around this time in this age where you don't have to buy CDs anymore, Right? Who, who loved buying a CD with, you know, 12 tracks on it, but you only wanted that one, right? You only wanted that one. So you tried to borrow that and try to tape it, right, on your cassette tape or you make a mixtape or whatever. So this is the first time where you start to have sort of those, those choices. And then you saw, you know, a lot of these, um, a lot of these uh, in this generation, they went to two or maybe three universities, different colleges, just to get one degree, because they're, they're picking and choosing. And some of them would go overseas for part of that. Because their opportunities that came out in this generation were, were unseen before that. And then there are even uh, you know, universities today are even kind of catering to that. And you can, in a lot of universities now, kind of craft your own major, right? You don't have to take the, the stereotypical majors that are, you know, been around for generations. But you can kind of make your own deal. And so it's kind of that, that kind of cafeteria where you go down the line and you get a little of this, you get a little of that. And you'll see it in, in kind of uh, religion and spirituality where it's like, I'll take a little bit of Buddha here. You know, this part of Christianity sounds good, but I'm not going to use those parts because that, you know, that's kind of, that's not cool anymore. And, you know, you're throwing a little Eastern, you know, mysticism and then a little Oprah to kind of top it off. And, and that's kind of the way that this life has been. And so there's a lot of confidence in that because they have so much kind of thought power because information is just so readily available. So, you know, caution to confidence, caution to confidence. And then the Gen Z, which is kind of the current generation right now. These are 2001 to 2018 is when my kids were born. And uh, some call them the homelanders, right? Because this is about the time when homeland security became like a thing. You know, you had, um, we had 9-11. You know, there's like... Thousands of terrorist attacks happen every, you know, all, since then. And, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, racial unrest, you know, all these different things kind of going on, cyberbullying, all this stuff that's really left these, this generation with saying, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm coping and I'm hoping, right? Like there's just so much going on in this day and age that I'm just, I'm just trying to get through it and I'm, I'm just hoping for a better future, right? I'm just kind of just going to make it through this time period. 
And so those are kind of the generations. And today we're going to kind of look at these last two specifically and, and what we can do as a church, but as people, as parents, as employers, as mentors, as just human beings, how we can kind of take a step forward and say, how can we help this next generation win? How can we help these, these generations win? And we're going to kind of lump them together for the sake of today. And a lot of people do. They call that the Generation IY, right? Where it's kind of like the I generation, the, the apple boom. And so we're going to kind of look at that and, and try to figure out how can we help this generation win? How can we help these people win? But to kind of do that, we need to sort of set the stage a little bit. And so like in movie terms, you know, they, like you got to set the stage, right? Set the mood. So we're going to look at what the scene of today kind of looks like. And so Chris made up this awesome slide for me where we're going to look at a couple different things. But the first one is their, their, their world is full of. And so it says scene right down the side there, right? So we're going to break this down a letter at a time. And so their world is full of, the first one is speed right? Speed. You have, you know, Instagram. It's not slowgram. It's instant. It's Instagram. You have Snapchat, right? You have Amazon Prime. You don't have to go and order stuff. I remember when, when I was first learning to play drums, I had a catalog. It was made of paper, okay? And it had, hand, it had hand-drawn pictures of cymbals and drums. And I would tell my mom, this is what I want for Christmas. And she would rip out the thing, mail it in, and then they would process it and then mail it back. And it took like three weeks to get something. Three weeks. If I don't see the Lord Prime next to it on Amazon, I'm probably not buying it, right? Because we're so used to speed. We want everything now, don't we? But, but they kind of assume, and with that, it almost makes you assume that bore, a slow is bad, right? And this isn't every kid, okay? This isn't every millennial. This isn't every kid. But, but it's sort of they can assume that slow is bad. That because it doesn't happen instantaneously, it's, it might not be worth it. It's not good. The next is convenience. Their world is full of convenience. Where you, you have a fast food restaurant like McDonald's, okay? Now you can order it before you even get to the drive-thru and then pull up and just grab it and go. You've already paid for it. They made fast food faster because somehow we needed fast food to be faster, right? But we have this convenience. It's just... It, you can, right from your phone, you could be standing in line to get that food. You can pay your mortgage, right? You can connect with an old friend. You can make dinner reservations right from the palm of your hand. Convenience. But on the flip side of that, it could lend itself to that hard is bad, right? If, you're, if everything's so easy, it's so convenient, then when something's hard, it kind of makes you think, is it really worth it? Is it really worth the effort to get that? They don't have an app. You know, I might not go down that route. I'm going to go with a bank that has an app. I'm going to do this because it's easier. Next is entertainment. Today, you can watch, you know, movies, video games. You can do whatever you want on a little device. Like, I remember when the phone first kind of had those abilities to, like, stream video. I thought, why would I want to watch a movie on a tiny screen like that when I can watch it on my TV at home? But we do it, don't we? We do it because we need to be constantly entertained. When you're riding a, a train or a plane, you can get internet in the plane now because you can't go an hour and a half without checking, you know, the Red Sox scores or, or knowing what's going on with Beyonce and her crew, you know. We need to be constantly entertained. Entertainment is just bombarding our lives where we can't just sit in boredom anymore. You can't just sit in boredom. But, but you know, professionals and, and counselors, they say that a lot of times in, in boredom, in that times of boredom when your kids are saying, Mom, I don't have anything to do. Like, that's when creativity begins to take root. 
That's when empathy is, is started to be formed, right? So we need to have these kind of times in our lives. But on the flip side, it makes you think that boring is bad. That boring is bad. That it's, you know, I just, I don't know what to do. You know, like, I, yeah, I have neighbors to play with, and there's like 100 toys in the garage, but I, you know, I don't know what to do. I can't use my Kindle today, right? And then N is, is nurture. Where, and we're going to kind of talk about this one a little bit more, but, but we've kind of taken our society, and, and I'm going to pause right here before I go any further. And so as a, as a pastor, as a person that speaks, there's, there's really two topics that you just hate to speak on. It's money and sex. And I just added a third one. It's parenting, okay? Because no one likes to get parenting tips, do they? You know, when, no one likes to tell you how to raise your kids, how to do that. But today we're going to do a lot on parenting specifically. And I'm a parent. I've got a little bit of experience in it. But a lot of this is generality. So I don't want you to walk out of here and, and, and feel like I'm beating up on you, okay? So this is just sort of generalities. But nurture is a big one where we sort of like bubble wrapped our children, right? Where we try to protect them so much. And we should because we love them, don't we? But, but we kind of nurture them to the point where they're left with thinking, you know, maybe risk is bad. Maybe risk is bad. Maybe it's, you know, I, I just, that's a little risky. I got to stay away from that. And in some instances, that's good. But, and we're going to break that down a little bit more. And the last one's entitlement. Entitlement. And this goes a lot with, with um, convenience, where I just feel entitled to things. Like, there's programs available. I should be able to do that. I should be able to go to that college. I should be able to get that job. I should be able to do this and that. And I, am, I deserve this everything. I deserve to be given the same as everybody else. And that can tend to lead to labor's bad. That it's, you know, if you have to work hard for it, it's not really worth it. And so as I kind of look at this, like a lot of these things seem awesome. Like they, this is kind of what makes life kind of nice right now. But then over here you think, yeah, slow is bad and hard is bad. But, but if you take a look at this side, if you were talking about, you know, exercise or working out or, you know, trying to be, uh, trying to gain some muscle, as you can see, I don't do that very often. But if you look at that, a good workout, like you do slow reps, right? You want to get the full range. You work hard at it. You probably get a sweat going. It's, or they do a lot of fast-paced stuff, like CrossFit's big right now. You risk, you gotta kind of push yourself, and it's hard work, right? That's what it takes to kind of stretch you, to grow. You don't get muscles by sitting on the couch and lifting potato chips. I've tried, believe me. It doesn't work. It doesn't work, but you kind of, that's how you stretch and you grow. But are we making it so much harder to do that by incorporating all these and, and putting so much stock in them? And so we're going to kind of look a little bit further at these and, and sort of as you look at the generations today, my generation and, and the generation behind me, is whenever they come up to, you know, be kind of encounter challenges or struggles in, in life in general, but a lot of the times it comes down to sort of two extremes kind of led to them getting caught up in this. A lot of the times it's one of these two where we either have abandonment or abundance, abandonment or abundance. And I think we can all kind of agree on abandonment, that abandonment would be maybe you have only one parent, right? You didn't have both parents growing up and it was difficult. Or maybe you had both parents, but you had a father or a mother that just was checked out. They weren't really active in participating in your life. And so we, we kind of know what abandonment can do. And we're not really going to talk about abandonment as much today. Um, and, but it's, it's definitely a hot topic, and especially you know, within the church, our, our divorce rates are just the same as outside the church. And so that's a message for another time, but we're going to kind of focus on this, this whole thought of abundance, abundance, this too much of a good thing. 
mentality that we're going to talk about. And we're going to look at four kind of mistakes we as parents, and I say we because I'm included in this. I've got three kids. I've made and I've nailed every one of these. And a lot of these uh, kind of mistakes come from a book by a man named uh, Tim Elmore. It, his book had 12 mistakes. That it's, just, it's called 12 Huge Mistakes Parents Can Avoid. Okay, so I've looked at them all. I've read all about them. I've made every one of the mistakes in the book. So this, again, we're not trying to beat anybody up, but these are mistakes that common parents, you know, we make. And so the first one is we risk too little. We risk too little. And the thing that's interesting about these, remember, we're going to kind of focus on that word abundance, where, you know, we, we love our kids, don't we? Like, I love my kids. I want the best for them. I want the best for them. And, and as a, you know, a mentor or as I do youth, I want the best for those kids. And so if you're not a parent today, like you encounter kids in some fashion, right? I'm hoping that you at least bump into them in some place. Maybe it's at your job that you have some younger people that kind of work next to you or beside you. Maybe you could put some of this into thought and practice, or maybe you have uh, nieces or nephews. I wouldn't go throwing you know, parental advice to your, your you know, siblings, but maybe you could, this could work its way in. But we risk too little, where we're so fearful that our kids are going to get hurt that we strip them of opportunities for growth. We strip them of opportunities for growth. Just Google the word monkey bars, okay? You look up monkey bars, and there's article after article calling for the destruction of any sort of type of monkey bar in the whole world, where someone wants to rip them all down and just burn them up because they're, they're, they can be dangerous. Kids can break arms. They have broken arms and all that. And so people were trying to really strip monkey bars from like school playgrounds and all of that. And then as that started to happen, a lot of these um, professionals and psychologists started to reach out and, and publish articles. And, and they started to say, you know, a lot of the same, you know, motor skills that kids develop while using the monkey bars are the same motor skills that help them hold a pencil. The teachers say that they've, they've noticed that as time goes on, kids' hands are not as strong as they used to be. You know, like, because they're not gripping, they're not swinging from things, they're not climbing things. And so my son, he had a, they, they gave all the kids like putty to kind of strengthen their hands because they're so busy pushing buttons all day instead of hanging from things and climbing up stuff and playing. Franklin Stone, she was a lawyer. She's kind of a community health advocate. And she posted this in the, in the New York Times. She said, for fear of lawsuits, so she's a lawyer, so she's used to lawsuits, but she said, for fear of lawsuits, we've created a bubble-wrapped society. Children have to learn to take reasonable physical and social risks if they're to become confident grown-ups. Parents want them to be. If children are constantly being told not to do things, it's too, or it's too dangerous, or they might get hurt. Parents and, teaches, parents and teachers are teaching them that they're weak. Think about that. What's the message that we're sending? Don't get me wrong. Okay? I'm not telling you to go give your kid a BB gun and a couple steak knives and go run around the neighborhood and just be confident, right? Be true to you. Be confident. Risk it all. But we need to think, like, what are we kind of keeping them from sometimes? Are we, are we doing a little bit more damage than we are good? There was a, a, a study that I saw that they said that kids who don't, aren't allowed to play outside and have never skinned a knee, right, gotten muddy, are more apt to have phobias as, as adults. Isn't that interesting? They're more apt to have phobias if they don't get outside, skin their knees, have some fun. The next one is we rescue too quickly. We rescue 
too quickly. This one's kind of, it's, it's a difficult one to kind of think about. And a lot of these, if you, if you just read these without any context, you think, I'm trying to get you to be a terrible parent, right? Like, you don't risk your kid's life. You, you need to rescue them if they're in danger. I agree with that. But there, there's a, a professor at a Syracuse University. He told this story where he teaches classes for uh, first-year college students. And it's at the beginning of the year, and this is a true story. I'm not, I'm not even making this up. And he handed back, like, the first round of papers. And this girl in the front, she's kind of, it's a big university. It's a big class. There's probably 50 or more kids in there. And he hands back the papers, and she gets a C- minus on it. First time she's ever gotten anything below a B in her entire life. She whips out her phone, and she texts her mom. Says, Mom, Professor so-and-so gave me a C-. minus." The mom texted back and said, Call me. So in the middle of class, she called her mom. And then she, held, she stood up in class. She said, My mom wants to talk to you. My mom wants to talk to you. Because somehow... She grew up thinking that mom's going to fix it. Mom's going to rescue me. Mom's going to rescue me. We've got to raise problem solvers, right? We don't need to constantly rescue our kids. If your kid's going to fall in a pool and they can't swim, rescue them. Like, please. But, you know, if your kid's starting to climb up those monkey bars and they get on that first one, like, you might need to let them do it. Like, you can kind of help them through it, but be there as a guide. Don't hold them back. We rescue too quickly. The next one, we rave and we reward. We rave too easily and reward too frequently. Okay, we all know this. I remember, you know, you grow up. I remember I have a, a Pinewood Derby trophy that I have down in my wood shop that I got when I was really little. And it's one of maybe two trophies that I got my entire life. Okay, and I, tre- I, I, I don't treasure it, but I have it in my wood shop because it's, it's kind of cool. Like, I worked hard on that, and I won something. I came in second place, but I remember getting that. I don't have a whole slew of, of you know, participation uh, ribbons. I can't even think of the name for them, right? Because, but nowadays, like, you show up, you get a ribbon. You show up, you get a trophy. You show up, and you get this. And we, we celebrate, you know, things that you're like, you brush your teeth today. That's fabulous. You know, like, you deserve a reward. No, you deserve to brush your teeth, and now you get to keep them, right? <laughs> like, my old dentist, he had a sign that said, you know, you only need to brush the teeth that you want to keep, okay? And that's what I tell my kids every time. They're like, do I have to brush my teeth? Only the ones you want to keep. And you're not getting a reward for it. You just, that's what you do. We have a, a chart. I was talking to my wife about this this past week, where we have a, um, and it's funny, like, I wanted my kid to have, like, an allowance, right? Like, because I grew up, I, I think I had an allowance. I can't really remember, but I wanted my kids to have some money. And so we made this chart, and there were certain chores that you just do because you're a part of the family. You just do them, right? Like you, you keep your room clean because it's your room, and you do this. And it's not to help mom. It's because it's your room. You clean it. But then we had some things that take a little bit more effort, and, and then they do get rewarded for that. But, but we rant and we rave about our kids sometimes, and, and I think, do they... I, I feel weird saying this, but do they deserve it all the time on every little thing? My son Jude, telling a lot of personal stories today. I didn't plan on it, but um, my son, he played baseball this year, and he's in farm league. And this year, kind of for the first time, they, they decided to do kid pitch. Um, so, like, the kids would pitch, like, four pitches, and then the coach would come in and throw. And so the first two games, it was all coach pitch, and Jude had some good hits and stuff, and we were excited. He, had a, he was having a good season. And then they introduced kid pitchers, which if you've ever seen, like, a second-grade kid pitch a baseball, it is scary. It's frightening. If you're standing up there, you're just like, Jude, was, Jude came up with the idea, I'm not even going to swing. 
until the coach comes up because he was just ducking balls, right? And so he, he went like four or five weeks without ever hitting a ball. After those, that it just threw him for a loop. And I remember we went to practice one night and I, to pick him up, and he was kind of depressed, and he was like, Dad, I'm the worst hitter on the team. Like, I'm the worst hitter on the team. And, and before that, when he would go through games and not have a hit, I'd be like, oh, Jude, you just, you're a great hitter, you know, you're doing awesome, you know, and all this stuff, just kind of build them up because we want to build their confidence, don't we? And, and we should build their confidence. But I remember that night I thought to myself, I was like, you know, I said to him, I was like, Jude, you could be a good hitter. I was like, but when was the last time you practiced? Like, have you, every time I try to throw balls to you, do you let me? He's like, no. And I'm like, well, like, that's maybe why you're not a great hitter. Like, I didn't sugarcoat it. And then I remember showing him a video of him swinging the bat. And I was like, Jude, you swing, like, really slow. Like, you're just, like, in slow-mo. And, and I've told him that, and he didn't believe me. And I showed him the video. And I was like, Jude, look how slow you are. I was like, I'm not making fun. Look how slow. And from that moment, it clicked. He's like, you know, I do have to swing a little harder. I do have to practice. And we practiced, and it was just like a fairy tale, you know? Like, we practiced, and then he hit the ball the next game. And I was like, see, if I would have just kind of kept going on, being like, you're a great hitter, Jude. Don't worry about it. Shake it off. Like, he could have gone the whole season without hitting the ball. But we need to be kind of practical and have good thought when we're telling them, you know, what we think. And, and they're going to know that if we're just sugarcoating it all the time, eventually they're going to realize, like, my mom and dad think I'm pretty awesome, but no one else seems to think I'm that good at baseball or basketball or whatever it might be. And they're going to start to resent you. And, and when kids kind of have parents that rave too much and they overdo that, they tend to be kids that learn how to cheat. They learn to exaggerate in life. They start to lie, right? Because we've built them up on a, a house of cards where they think that they're this amazing thing so they don't have to work. They don't have to do, put in the good work. The next one's we prioritize being happy. And this one it seems like an oxymoron, but, and it's kind of counterintuitive. But we all kind of want to be happy. And I want my kids to be happy. And I want all of you to be happy. We did a whole series called um, How to Be Happy, right? So, like, I get it. We want our kids to be happy. But we say phrases like, like, you know, you have such a bad attitude. Why can't you just be happy? Why can't you just be happy? Are you sure that he's the right one for you? Does, does he make you happy? Like, not are you in love with him, but does he make you happy? Is happiness the goal that we're teaching our kids? And, and th even things like, you know, mommy and daddy, we're just, we're just happier if we live separately. We're just, we're just happier if we do that. And, and Disney tells us that happily ever after, right? Like that that's the goal, that whatever it takes is happiness is the result. But, but what is it about life if, if we're not supposed to chase happiness, then what should we be chasing? And a couple weeks ago, we did a whole series on neighboring. And Jesus said that, you know, the two most important things in life are to love God with everything that you have. Love God first and then love your neighbor as yourself. I think our key is to, to live an others-centered life where we love other people above ourselves, and that leads to true happiness. This doctor, we have a quote. I can't even begin to pronounce this person's name. We're just calling him Dr. C. Like, look at that. That's insane. And so <laughs> Dr. C says this, that life satisfaction or happiness, I added that, life satisfaction occurs most often when people are engaged in absorbing activities, like engaged activities where you can't, you know, your focus is dialed right in, absorbing activities that cause them to forget about themselves 
and lose track of time and stop worrying. When we begin to focus on other people, we begin to focus on the needs of other people, that brings happiness. Happiness comes out of that. But happiness shouldn't be our goal. When we stop you know, spending our time, or when we, we spend our time loving God, rather, and loving other people, we don't have time to worry about being happy. It becomes a byproduct. When we prioritize happiness, it, it kind of becomes elusive, doesn't it? Because you, you, you think, oh, I'll just be happy if I have this next thing. And then they get that next thing. And then it's Christmas time, right? Like, my kids, all they want is stuff for Christmas. And then a month after Christmas happens, they get what they wanted. And then what do they want? Something else. Like, in that thing, it's just a constant circle where we, happiness becomes elusive. And it's often disappointing because things usually are never as awesome as you think they're going to be, right? The anticipation is what it is. But true happiness, it's sort of a byproduct of, of finding, like, your gifts, of finding your talents, of finding, like, what you're good at and using those to bless others. And all these things can seem like good ideas, and, and, and they are in the moment. Like, I'm not saying you're a bad person or a bad parent or a bad mentor if you rescue your kid, if you teach them, you know, to, and you protect them from different things, and you want them to be happy, because those are all good things. They come from, you know, a loving heart. That's what we're talking about this morning, is, is that you love your kids, you love these, these, this next young generation, and that's awesome, but we need to kind of prepare them for more. We need to be kind of future mindset. We need to prepare our children. And this, this, in the book of Proverbs, this is a book that was uh, kind of written by Solomon. He was one of the wisest men ever. And, and it's just filled with like super practical, easy application stuff. And in Proverbs, in, in uh, chapter 22, it said this. It says, start children off on the way they should go. And even when they're old, they will not turn from it. Start your children off on the way they should go. It's kind of like get them on the path. Set them out. When your child's born or when you were born, you began a journey. You started, hence the name Journey Church, right? Because we're all on a journey. But when you were born, you started out on a journey. You began walking down a path. And what we can do to best help the next generation win is to get them started in the right direction. Hand them a compass so they know where to go. But we need to prepare our children, right? And so often we think that we need to kind of protect and prepare the path for our children. We need to kind of make it easy for them. But in reality, we need to prepare our children for the path instead of preparing the path for the child. Because we don't know what that path's going to look like. It could have, you know, bumps. It could have valleys. It could have the highest highs, and it could have the lowest lows. But we don't know what that's going to be. And even if we try to prepare the path for them, that path can look completely different than we thought it would. And then what are they going to be left with? If they were prepared for a specific path, but they don't end up on it, what are they left with? We need to prepare them for the path that's set out before them. And when we throw on, you know, our super dad cape or our super mom cape and we try to, you know, make their life as easy as possible and we rescue them from failure after failure, that we're telling them, we're saying, you know, we think we're saying, I love you so much. I just want you to have the best life ever. I want you to have the easiest life ever. But what we're really saying is, you know, I don't think that you can do this without me. I, you know, you're, you're teaching them. I, I think you're weak and you need me to, to make this possible. 
I, I read a study uh, from 2007 of the Collegiate Employment Research Institute at Michigan State University. This is going to blow your minds. It blew my mind. I, I, like, I read this every time I think, this, this cannot be possible. But they did a study, and they interviewed 725 employers. So these are 725 different companies. And they asked them about the involvement of parents while hiring employees. Okay, So this is like the collegiate um, research. So a lot of these, they, they tried to focus on kind of fresh out of college um, employees. And so what they looked at. And they looked at a variety of different things. And they found this. They found that more than 30% recorded, reported that parents had submitted resumes for their children. Over th- about 30%. Okay, That wasn't even the shocking one. Okay where students get calls about jobs that they didn't even know that they applied for, that their mom and their dad put their resume in for. 30% of, of these 725. 15% reported fielding complaints from parents when the company didn't hire their child. 15%. If my mom called my boss, I would shrivel up and die. Like, wow. Nearly 10% said parents had inserted themselves into salary and benefit negotiations. Can you believe that? 10% had mom say, I think he deserves better. He needs more benefits. He needs more time off. Or dad. More, actually, on that one, it was more often the father than the mother. Okay, and then this one. This one's the, the one that killed me. 4% of companies reported that they have seen parents attend the job interview with their college degree holding son or daughter, where the mom or the dad was physically trying to go into the interview with them. I I heard another statistic, and I couldn't find anything to back it up, but they said one out of every eight millennials has a parent go with them to a job interview. One out of every eight. Wow. What are we doing? Right? Like, what are we doing? Have we built this generation up to think that you can't do this without me? You can't do this without me. There's a difference between loving your kid and just, you know, loving your kid, apparently, that much. So where do we go from here? Kind of like, I've kind of beat up, you know, parents a little bit and, and all that, and I don't mean to do that because we're all in this together, right? We're all on this path. We're all struggling to do this. If you're a parent here today, you made it here today. Like, that should be celebrated in, in itself. Like, you have, you know, your kids were clothed when they got here. They were probably changed, I hope. You know, maybe there's some semblance of food in their bellies, but you made it because parenting is not easy, Every time Ian shows up on a Sunday morning, I think, you have triplets. How are you here today? And still functioning, right? Because parenting is hard. It is so hard. But how can we kind of shift our mind, right? How can we shift our mind from thinking short term, for thinking, what can I do for my kid that just gets me out of this situation? How can we shift our thinking? And so we're going to kind of try to go from, from like, solution, like in the now, solving, to kind of future mindset. How can we do that? And the the truth is that the further out I can see, like if I try to see the furthest out that I can see, then the better the decision that I'm going to make is 
to be, the better the decision I'll make to help the next gen win. The further out I can see, you know, they say hindsight's 2020, but if you can see out and you can kind of see the, the downstream effects of the decisions that we make, the better that those decisions are going to be. And so we're going to look at three tips real quick. We're going to kind of, I'm hoping to blast right through these, but here's some three tips. The first one is uh, that we're going to look at how to lead the next generation well is don't think control, but think connect. Think connect. Don't try to control your kid because the truth is you cannot control them. I'm sure you figured that out probably by now, but you just can't control them. And you're just going to be, you know, going around in circles if you're trying to control their every action, their every thought. But seek a connection with them. You know, seek a connection, a real heart connection where you talk about their day. Ask them. Ask them their day. There's a Parent Q app that you can download. It's free. And you put in your kid's age and it gives you topics to talk about with your kid, and it follows along actually with the curriculum that they're learning next door. And so you, it gives you things to talk about at the dinner table, in the car ride home, and you connect with them. And when you begin to connect with them, you start to see this downstream effect of they actually listen to you. Like if they see that you're not just trying to control them, but that you're there for their best interests, that they'll begin to connect with you. And then you'll have this relationship, but, I, but it starts when they're young. Okay, if you just try to start this when they're like in their second year of college, it's going to be pretty difficult to get that. Spend time with them. Seek a connection. The next one's don't think rules, think equations. In my house, we don't really use equations. We think we, we use consequences, but think equations. Okay, no one likes rules, right? Everyone hates rules. They're boring. They're just, they're not fun. But what if we sought to think about equations? We taught kids to, to think about equations. And they're all around us where, you know, if you make that decision, right, like that plus or this situation plus that decision is going to be, you know, a good outcome. Like the answer to that is going to be something good happens. But if you kind of have that situation, you pick that answer, like you do that, that's going to result in this bad consequence. If we take time to seek you know, equations. Think about it this way. If you stop paying your mortgage this month, what's going to happen? You know the result of that. You're, you're going to get delinquent. If you don't pay the next month, your house is probably going to start looking at getting foreclosed on. There's equations all around us. And if we teach them to be problem solvers, then instead of setting rules and we begin to think that way, they're going to have a better connection and they're going to, they're going to realize like, that I have consequences to my actions. It's not just that I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to go to my room. It's that there's going to be consequences that go with it. The last one's don't think lecture, think lab. If you think of science class, maybe in high school or college, you had like a lecture class or a normal class, and then you had your lab class that was separate where you got to kind of do those experiments and you're kind of in a controlled setting, but you get to kind of you do what you learned the, in the previous class. And so what we're suggesting is, is kind of take this next generation and bring them along with you. Bring them along with you as you kind of live out what a godly life looks like. Maybe, maybe have them join you as you bake cookies for a neighbor or, or bring them to a homeless ministry where they can look and see what does it really look like to live for somebody else. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes a kid's going to need a good old-fashioned lecture, right? Like they need a good old-fashioned talking to. And, and I'm not saying that we should never do these things, but, but sometimes if we could put them in, in controlled kind of settings, controlled, I just told you not to control, but I use the word control. But if we can kind of place them in settings where they can use the gifts that God has given them, it's going to revolutionize them. It's going to blow their minds that I have gifts and I can use those. 
we need to put them in situations where we can show them what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a good person, to be a, just a good human. And as parents, I think we need to start preparing our kids for the future instead of just solving the, the problems of today. But it's so easy to fall into that, to think it's so much easier for me to clean their room than to sit there and go and check on it every time, be like, you didn't pick that up, you didn't pick that up. It's so much easier to just go do it for them sometimes. But are they going to gain anything out of that? And I looked in part of that Parent Q app that I was telling you about. You put your kid's age in and what grade they're in, and it'll tell you. So Jude has about 523 weeks left before he graduates high school. Just about 523 weeks. And that's going to go by like that. Like he's already, as a third, going to third grade, it, it looked like he's already practically halfway. And he's only in third grade. That, that just, when I read that, I was like, holy smokes. Like I have 523 weeks of where I am one of the most powerful direct influences in his life. And once he graduates from high school, then that's when all those other influences can start to take over where college professors will start beating them down with things that we should have taught them when they were young. When I was a kid, like I used to call, I would ask my dad or my mom, and they would basically teach me a lot of the things I needed to know, or my teacher would teach me all these things. But we're living in a day and age where kids have unlimited access to information, where they don't need us, besides granting privileges maybe, but they don't need us to find information out. They have Google, they have YouTube, they have, you know, the, the bus on the ride to school. Like there's all these different avenues where they're learning all of this stuff at just a few keystrokes where before I would have to, you know, find a book or find a library to then go find a book to then all these steps or I'd have to ask someone to tell me. But now Jude talks about things. I'm like, how did you find that out? Like, how did you know that? Like, where did you get that from? He's like, oh, I saw it on YouTube or I saw it in Minecraft or whatever. And so they're bombarded and they have such easy access to, to, to information. And I, I refinished my basement this past summer, well, winter, and I didn't need to call my dad to say, hey, dad, how do I frame a wall? Hey, dad, like, how should I do the subfloor in the basement? Like, how should I hang drywall? I didn't need to call my dad for it because I could just Google it all day, and I found out how to do it. But what I did call my dad every other day for was to say, Dad, like, this is kind of what I'm planning to do. Like, how does that work? Like, what, what else do I need to think about? What's the context of that? Like, what have you done in the past? And that's where we come in, where we might not be able to have all the information, and kids aren't maybe coming to us for all the information, but they need context. They need to know how to apply that to their life. I need to know, you know, how do I take all this stuff that I'm hearing and I'm learning? And there's so many different answers and ways, but how do I know what's the best? How do I interpret that? They need our life experience, and it's our kind of mandate to share that with them. And that's how we're going to help the next generation win, is to be present. That's, that's basically the answer to this, is be present. Let them fail. Be there for them when they do. Help pick them back up. Maybe give them opportunities to grow, but let them grow. Let them stretch. I have 523 weeks left with Jude, my oldest. And your, your son or your daughter might be older than that. You might have, you know, 100 weeks left. You might have 52. This might be their last year of high school. You know, but whatever it is, now is the time to do it. It can't wait till later because later we'll be here before you know it. And then you're going to be wishing that you had done more, that you had been more present, that you had been more, you would let them fall, that you would let them kind of fail and, and go through these things so that you could, not to abandon them, 
but to help them along. Because too much of a good thing sometimes can be just as damaging as not anything at all. So next week, Jim's going to be back. He's going he's to kind of tackle this from another angle, and we're super excited about how he's going to do that. And then uh, we have another, a guest speaker who's coming in the week after that. It's going to be really, really exciting. So we have a lot going on uh, with this series. But before I let you guys go, let's pray real quick. God, we love you. We thank you uh, for the example of a heavenly father and, and, and to us to look up to you and, and to your word, God, on how we as parents and, and mentors and employers and employees and just people can, can impact this next generation, God. I pray that you help us to be future-minded, to think about our decisions and how we're doing and how that affects our children and those uh, in the generations behind us, how we can impact them for good and set them up on the path so that they will return to it in the future. We love you. Pray for a great week in Jesus' name. Amen.